Well, it's spring break time, and we've put together a special best of three-point podcast for you to listen to as you rip up your brackets. I'm Ted Fattel of Sportsnet Michigan and Z92.5 Radio, representing all the baby boomers of the planet. Gen Xer Matt Burns checks in from ESPN in Charlotte, North Carolina. He's our social media man. And Jared Fattel of Grand Valley State University and Fox 17 in Grand Rapids gives his viewpoints from the millennial perspective. We're here every week thanks to our partners, Advanced Elevator, Sheridan Realty and Auction Company, Rivals Taphouse and Grill, and the Corona Connection. Well, we've had some great guests in the last year, including Emmy Award winner Ryan McGee of ESPN and football head coach Tony Anise, whose Ferris State Bulldogs played in the Division II National Championship game last fall. We also have had some great appearances and interesting observations by Jack Strap, and we have a good one queued up for you. We'll get it all rolling right after these messages from our Three Point Podcast partners. Rivals Tap House and Grill is the area's go-to spot for the best in food and drink. Meet up with your friends and catch your favorite sporting events on over 20 high-def flat-screen TVs. And our 120-inch projection screen. Rivals can handle your large or small parties and is an awesome spot to put on your fundraising events. Weekly food and drink specials including gourmet burgers, wings, pizza, homemade soup, and salads. Rivals also stocks a large selection of craft and domestic brews. Rivals Tap House and Grill, the official gathering spot of Three Point Podcast, located on the corner of Shiawassee and M21 in Corona. 85, 90, 95, 100. Looking for items to buy or sell? Look no further than SheridanAuctionService.com. We will solve your problem. Bring Sheridan Realty and auction your items and we will market them all over the country and get them sold. If you are looking to buy items, we can help with that too. Call today, 989-720-SELL. It's fast, easy, and we get results. SheridanAuctionService.com. Buy or sell, we'll get it done for you. Call 989-720-SELL. You'll do better with Sheridan. Well, first up is the Emmy Award winning and very entertaining Ryan McGee, who joined us for Three Point Pod number 32. All right, guys. Well, uh, now's as good a time as any to get to our, our guest tonight. We, we have a treat for our listeners. He's an ESPN senior writer, but, but man, he's, he's really all over the place. He writes for ESPN.com. Uh, I see him down here in Charlotte when he fills in on the Paul Feinbaum show. I saw that he, he wrote and, well, contributed to Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s book, Racing to the Finish. Got a radio show with Marty Smith, Marty McGee. That's a Saturday mornings on ESPN Radio. And uh, you guys got a new new show coming that's going to be airing on the SEC Network, Marty and McGee talking season with all the football coaches from the SEC. Uh, Ryan, what, what don't you do? <laughs> uh, well, listen, you know the deal, young man. If uh, You don't say no. Say, would you like to do so-and-so? The answer is always yes, because if you say no, then someone else might say yes, and then they won't call anymore. <laughs> so, no, yes, sir. I'm, I'm really, really fortunate that I get to I get to do a lot of different things, and, um, and particularly getting to work with my buddy Marty, who's been a friend of mine for almost 20 years now. And, uh, yeah, we're excited. We're, we're going to be doing – We'll be doing a lot of TV this fall on SEC Network, and this talking season, these these coaches specials kind of kicked that off. And uh, we are as surprised as anyone that anyone would let us just sit there and talk. And uh, you know, we we managed to uh, break down barriers, and we're rednecks on ESPN, so we'll take whatever we can get. <laughs> Weren't you the original redneck at ESPN? Yeah, yeah, I was. In fact, I tell the story all the time. The reason I became the NASCAR guy, um, I started at ESPN right out of college as a production assistant uh, back in 1994. And I always tell Jeff Gordon that I owe him everything because my first week on the job, he won the inaugural Brickyard 400. Wow. And suddenly NASCAR was cool in the building. And at ESPN, uh, 20, almost 25 years ago, there were only two Southerners in the entire company. It was <laughs> me and Reese Davis. <laughs> really? Uh, he, he was from Alabama and I was from North Carolina. And when they found out I was from Rockingham, they were like, well, you know a lot about NASCAR, right? And I'm like, yeah, and I don't think I knew as much as they thought I did, but I knew way more than they did. So uh, so it worked. So with NASCAR, as I don't really watch it that much. What's something that goes into, like, a NASCAR event or a race, like some nuances that I wouldn't notice just as a casual watcher? Well, it's just there's so much more to it. You know, you always just kind of roll your eyes when somebody says just go fast and turn left or whatever. But <laughs> yeah. there, there's – it is um, – you go to a race shop, and I think people assume that all the, the race headquarters, racing team headquarters here in the Charlotte area are like, you know, the barn in Days of Thunder. And the reality is is that 
they're clean rooms. I mean, they look like what you see when you're watching a documentary about NASA building satellites. And there are literally rocket scientists that work on these race cars. And so there's so much more to it than that. And plus, just the enormity of the event. You know, any regular old Sunday afternoon, you know, uh, Cup Series race, whether it's at Dover or Daytona or wherever, it feels like a gigantic college football game. I mean, there's Air Force flyovers, and there's thousands of people, and the logistics of how they pull it off, and, and the facilities are so big, even the small places. So that's what I – it's funny, like Bristol Motor Speedway, which is one of the smallest facilities you know, racetrack-wise that NASCAR runs on, you know, when they had the Virginia Tech-Tennessee game there just a couple of years ago, you know, it set the all-time attendance record for a college football game, and and – Physically, that's one of the smallest facilities NASCAR runs on. So every event just feels giant. I always tell everybody, even if you don't care a thing about it, you should go just to get a sense of, of how big every single one of those races is. What do you think, Ryan, was the turning point in uh, NASCAR to become really – it's one of the top four sports, I think. I think it's past NHL hockey in America. So it's it's one of those team sports where, you know, fans latch on to their favorite racer. Like you said, it's got the big uh, stadium atmosphere. What do you think was the one event maybe that put it into that echelon? Well, I think it was – I go back to when Jeff Gordon won the Brickyard 400. It was the first time that the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, which is my single most favorite sporting venue in the world, when it finally hosted – a non-IndyCar race, when it hosted a stock car race, and there were 300,000 people there. And Jeff Gordon, who was born in Northern California and grew up in, in Indiana, and when he won, he's young and good-looking, and you know most of the guys looked like Dale Earnhardt, who you know, was a friend of mine. But Dale Earnhardt was in his 40s and had a mustache and was redneck, and <laughs> Jeff Gordon was none of that. And so I really felt like that was kind of the breakthrough because it introduced basically the whole left side of the country you know, into NASCAR. And so, yeah, that's when the boom started. And it stayed there. I mean, that, that sport grew at a, a breakneck speed for 20 years. And it's it's struggling a little bit now because I think that, you know, uh, we got a millennial on the line here, but millennials don't really care that much about cars. And, you know, my daughter I have, has babysitters, and I have college-age babysitters that I have to drive home because they just cars aren't a thing. And so uh, NASCAR struggles a little bit right now with what the future is going to look like, but there's no question to me that it really started uh, that summer of 1994 is, is when the boom time started. Speaking of millennials, one of the one of the maybe the future of NASCAR, maybe one of the guys that he recently won a race, Eric Jones. He's actually from uh, our neck of the woods where we yeah. grew up there in Corona. He's from a town right near Corona, so. So that's kind of cool to have that local connection. But, but I've seen him talk about uh, that he grew up racing all over the place. But there's a speedway, just a little dirt track in, in our hometown. It's called the Wasso Speedway. The big yeah, where a lot of people go. You know, there's the, the guys, the weekend warriors that take their cars out there and stuff like that. And, and it's cool to hear a guy like Eric Jones talk about a Wasso Speedway and how that's kind of where he got his roots going. And, and you hear Tony Stewart, he still loves to race on tracks like that. What, what's different about racing on those hometown tracks, those dirt tracks, than racing at a place like Bristol Motor Speedway or, or MIS? Yeah, well, I tell people all the time, you know, it's like I'm, I'm a big minor league baseball guy. I, my, my next minor league ballpark will be my 100th minor league ballpark. I just love going, and that's the difference. You know, the difference is you're closer to it. It's homier. They're younger. You know, you kind of have that same mix on the field at a minor league baseball game that you have, you know, if you go to a Saturday night short track somewhere, which is you got the old guys like Crash Davis that are at the end of their career, and you got the young guys like Eric Jones just a couple of years ago that are teenagers, you know, on, on the way up in their career. But it, it's the difference between going to a Detroit Tigers game and going to a Lansing Lugnuts game. You know, you, you, you feel like you're kind of in on something on the ground floor when you go to a short track. And, and I don't think people – People who are hardcore race fans know this, but I don't think people, just general sports fans, understand no matter where you are in the country, you're probably a pretty short drive away from a Saturday night summertime short track. And uh, that's where all these guys get started. I mean, listen, Chase Elliott, who just won his first Cup Series race, you know, the son of Bill Elliott, of course, the NASCAR legend, I've been watching Chase race since he was about 10 years old. And on, on the smallest tracks that you've never heard of, little dirt tracks around the Carolinas, and now, you know, he's a winner in the Cup Series. So that's, that's just like any other sport. It's just the difference is it's, you don't play Pop Warner football if you're Jeff Gordon. 
you raise quarter midgets when you're eight or nine years old, which is what his kids are doing now. So here, here's a great question, Ryan. So you've worked with both, uh, according to your Wikipedia page, uh, big time <laughs> researcher here, but according to your Wikipedia page, you had uh, Paul Newman uh, narrated one of your documentaries. And as we know, you've worked on a Paul Feinbaum show. So which yeah. Paul do you like more? Uh, well, it, it, I think and I think that Paul Feinbaum would not argue with me about this, but Paul Newman's the coolest dude I've ever been in a room with in my life. <laughs> so we did. I worked at NASCAR Media Group, which I, I always describe it as NFL films with race cars. I worked there for a couple of years, and one of the big projects we worked on was a documentary film called titled Dale. And uh, and we, Paul Newman, owned an IndyCar team forever. Uh, you know, was famous for driving around. You know. The, the rich suburbs of Connecticut in a Volvo station wagon that he had like a Ford Cosworth IndyCar engine dropped into. And so he was a racing guy. He raced sports cars forever. And, of course, you know, starred in the movie Winning. I mean, he was a racing guy. And so when we went to Paul Newman, I approached him through his IndyCar team and wanted to know if he would be interested. And he had been friends with Dale Earnhardt. And so he, he agreed to do it. And, in fact, for free, uh, the money that we had budgeted – to pay Paul Newman or whoever the narrator would be, Paul Newman just wanted us to donate that to his Newman's own uh, uh, charities. So yeah, that was that was an intimidating experience, I tell you that. But uh, but it was awesome. It, it turned out to be his last kind of big feature film project. Wow. Well, I'll tell you, we're talking NASCAR, and I'll tell you what, this is the most we've ever talked about it. <laughs> I appreciate that. And, uh, and, and and I have some more interest about it too. <laughs> Yeah, well, good. Well, then I've done my job. Absolutely, I agree, and, and it, maybe it's bad, but the only thing I know, I I know Paul Newman. He's you know how much people respect him as a NASCAR driver, but to be honest, the thing that I know him most for is just I think he voiced like a car <laughs> on the in, in a Pixar movie. Oh yeah, well, and it's funny too. So I went out to Pixar. Uh, he was in Cars, the original Cars movie, and I was out at Pixar uh, before Cars three came out in theaters a year ago, mm-hmm. and. I was arguing with those guys because they claim that they were the last feature film that Paul Newman worked on. And I told them, I said, nope. I said, our documentary we did was the last one he worked on. And so we, we were having a fun debate about that. Speaking of movies, where do you rank Talladega Nights? Oh, I love it. You know, and it's funny, too, because so people, people in the NASCAR world get so oversensitive about how they're portrayed on the silver screen. Uh-huh. And I mentioned the barn in Days of Thunder. You know, legend has it, it's not a legend, it's a fact, when they had the big premiere of Days of Thunder in Charlotte in 1990, people got it walked out as soon as the movie started because one of the first scenes in the movie was this barn and, and the, the, the font, the, the graphic that came up said Charlotte, North Carolina, and those guys were in there working on a race car. And they, the NASCAR people were so offended by that. Well, with the Talladega Nights premiere in the 90s, I was working at NASCAR Media Group, and I was in a theater that was full of nothing but NASCAR employees, including the president of NASCAR, Mike Helton, who was a notoriously stone-faced guy. And he was sitting in the middle, a huge dude. He was sitting in the middle of the theater. And my wife and I are just dying, cracking up, watching this movie. And no one else would laugh because they were all afraid they would offend Mike Helton. And then finally, Mike Helton busted out laughing when it got to the part where Ricky Bobby's wife announces, she goes, I do not work. You know, I'm a race car driver's wife. That's such an inside joke, you know, but it's so true. But yeah, I, I like it. I, I got I got no problem with, uh, but, but some of the people in the sport get a little sensitive about how they're portrayed, but I think it's awesome. Yeah, well, obviously a parody, and, and then you got to thicken up that skin just a little bit, right? Yeah, and it, 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 it's funny. How, well, it's like the program, right, the college football film right? That, uh, that, that came out around the same time Days of Thunder came out. People in college football are just so deeply offended. I'm like, guys. I mean, th- this is a movie with James Caan. It's basically a cartoon. Just, just you know, enjoy it and be glad that the sport's getting a little attention. Well, Ryan, you talked about uh, the size of some of these NASCAR stadiums or the, the tracks. And, and uh, Jared, a couple weeks ago, he went to a country festival at MIS in Michigan, Faster Horses. I don't know if you've yeah. heard of that. Yeah, and we were talking about it on one of the, the last podcasts, and he was talking about how just – how big the stadium was and everything like that. And I, I grew up going to MIS back when, back when the capacity was 125,000. Yeah. That's all I was telling them, that the, the grandstands used to go basically around that whole two-mile track. I, I, I don't know. How, why have things changed? Is it, is it just that millennials aren't into the, the racing, or do you think it's that you know, people are following NFL and NBA more? Well, it's a lot of things. And, you know, Marty and I have 
kind of half joke that we'd like to do a 30 for 30, like what happened to motorsports. And um, and it's not just NASCAR. It's Formula One. It's everything's taking a dip. But I think that there's a lot of reasons. I mean, listen, the, when the economic crash happened in 2008, um, no sport was hurt worse than NASCAR. And the reason is because, as you guys know, it's a sponsorship-based you know, financial system, yeah. just how the whole thing is built. And so it was exposed a little bit. You know, companies said, why are we spending $20 million to sponsor a race car? Are we really getting a return on investment? So that happened. You know, there are also racetracks and, and race teams. They created a generation of salespeople that didn't have to really sell. They didn't know how to sell because the phone just rang all day. They just took orders. And so when the phone quit ringing, they didn't really know how to go out and drum up business and how to raise funds. And so I think that was part of it, too. And, and I, I really believe, too, you know, I know people bang on millennials all the time, but the reality is if, if a movie is longer than two and a half hours, people just flip out. This is too long. I'm in here to this is crazy. What are we doing? And every single race weekend lasts three, sometimes four days. And every single cup race lasts four hours. You know, everything this, in the season starts in the middle of February, and it, it starts at Valentine's and it ends at Thanksgiving. Everything's too long, you know, and, and, and one thing we do know about uh, millennials, and, and I think this applies to me too, is that you, you, I, you can't sit through but so much. And so attention spans just aren't what they are. So it's a, it's a really complicated um, equation, but, but the reality is that, you know, they need to look at doing some things and they've just got to be gutsy enough to, to take some big swings. I got one more two-part question here in race. And number one, on the topic you just talked about, are they kind of in the same boat as Major League Baseball where they need to develop more personalities, more electricity with the drivers themselves? How do you see that? And then my follow-up question is, uh, I understand that you had an interesting flight in 2009 with Richard Petty from the Coca-Cola 600 to the Indy 500 and back. Talk, talk a little bit about that. Well, I asked the first part uh, first, which is, um, yeah, I think that they're absolutely, and like baseball, the personalities are there. It's just a matter of letting those guys be them. There's players that rub guys the wrong way with bat flips and funky rooster haircuts and all this other stuff. But the reality is uh, I think they could go a long way with young people. Listen, my daughter uh, grew up and was born and raised and has lived in the Carolinas her whole life, loves Mike Trout. I mean, loves him. <laughs> and she loves him because we went and saw him play one time when she was a little girl. Baseball should do a better job of promoting that guy. You know, baseball should do a better job of promoting their new you know, home run derby champion. I mean, those, those guys need to be promoted. And, listen, NASCAR is the same way. There are so many – listen, Jimmy Johnson is the, is the all-time greatest example of this. Jimmy Johnson is the least boring person that I know. He's a wild man, <laughs> and no one knows that. And the reason is because you know, he, he's just kind of whitewashed, whether it's sponsors or whether it's NASCAR itself or whether it's Hendrick Motorsports or whatever. They've never really been, let him be publicly the person that I know he is privately. And he's, a, he's, he's one of the finest people I know. He's a great father. But he also is a freaking wild man. And that should be out there a little bit. You know, Chase Elliott, same way. But no one would know that at home because by the time he goes through all the filters, sponsors and whoever – he comes off as boring. So, yeah, I think that has a lot to do with it. 2009 with Richard Petty, that was might have been the most fun I've ever had at work in my life. They There was STP was sponsoring a car with Richard Petty's 43 on it in the Petty Blue. John Andretti, uh, who had driven for Richard Petty in NASCAR, he was driving the car. This was in the Indy 500. And, of course, Richard Petty owns his 43 car, famous 43 car NASCAR. And we did the double. We met at the Charlotte Motor Speedway uh, at dawn, uh, the Sunday of Memorial Day weekend, and we flew uh, to Indianapolis, landed at the, at the racetrack, or excuse me, landed at the airport, got on a helicopter, flew in a helicopter, landed on the backstretch. There was a golf course there at, the, at IMS, and we landed, and there were golf carts waiting to take us in. And, yeah, we went in and stayed for, we stayed halfway through the race and got back on the helicopter and went back to Charlotte. So I got to hang out with Richard Petty all day. I was a huge fan growing up. But the story I always tell is we landed at the Speedway, and there's two golf carts. And, and the king looks at me and he goes, well, you need to get your credentials so you can get into the garage. I go, right. <laughs> he goes, all right. He said, that golf cart will take you to the credential office. I go, great. And then he takes his finger and he points directly into his own face. 
And he goes, I have my credentials with me. <laughs> so I don't need to go to the credential office. And he jumped on his golf cart and took off the other way. So, yeah, that was the, the king was my guy when I was a kid. And so uh, to have, to, to have a, a friendship with him now is one of the most surreal experiences, as you guys can imagine. Yeah, the all-time legend, without a doubt. Yeah, that, that is really cool. I mean, the guy, growing up going to the races, the king and Dale Earnhardt were, that, that was who my dad that's all he talked about. I was one of the ones that hopped on the Jeff Gordon bandwagon. I was, I was a Rainbow Warrior when he started winning. So, so th- those are definitely some cool stories. While, while we got you on the horn, though, I've got to ask you about something. So you were talking about Marty Smith and the radio show and everything, and, and I think there's a reason why you guys are getting more airtime and everything because it's really good. You're, the radio show is awesome, the podcast, everything. I, I, I love listening to you guys. But I've got to ask you about something, the hillbilly headlines and the hillbillyisms yeah. and all that. So, yeah. I mean, we're from Michigan. You go to northern Michigan, you, you get to some – there's some hillbilly areas. There's some redneck oh, yeah. areas. It, it's not oh. necessarily the south. I mean, we, we say all the time that uh, – um, I, I always tell the story. When I moved to Connecticut, I moved to Bristol, Connecticut, right out of college. And I remember calling my father as I was driving around in, like, Southington or Farmington or one of those towns there in, in Connecticut. I called my dad, and I go, man, there are rednecks everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was, and it's a fact. And, and when we do hillbilly headlines on Saturday mornings, uh, you know, there's no question that the state of Florida dominates the hillbilly headlines, and no one should be surprised by that. But Florida is this quilt work of people from all over the country. You know, the, no one's from Florida. They moved to Florida from New England, from the Midwest, from Arizona, from everywhere. But what we have learned is there are hillbillies and rednecks everywhere. We've had hillbilly headlines from Brazil from Germany. We had a guy in Australia the other day that burned down his entire neighborhood because he was trying to kill like a squirrel with a blowtorch. I mean, these are the things that, that we, you know, we, we get them from all over the world. So it's, uh, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. We have learned, we educate the world uh, on that fact that there are hillbillies everywhere. Well, I know you're running short on time, and man, do we appreciate the time you've given us. But I got another follow-up question in a different sport, if you don't mind, Ryan. Sure. I know your second book was The Road to Omaha, Hits, Hopes, and History of the College World Series. I happened to catch you just by accident. It was a rain delay this year, and there was a documentary about the 1996 championship game between LSU and Miami. Now, can you paint the picture of that uh, natural moment, if you will, uh, of that final World Series game? Yeah, I mean, listen, it was the greatest moment in the history of the College World Series, and it will always be the greatest moment in the history of the College World Series. And a guy named Warren Morris, who was a local kid from Louisiana, uh, was a great high school ball player but got no scholarship offers, walked on at LSU, uh, backed up Todd Walker, who I work with now at SEC Network, and Todd, of course, played in the big leagues forever, one of the greatest hitters in the history of college baseball. And poor Warren finally was going to be the second baseman, and he broke his hand. Uh, at the start of the year and missed the entire season and then came back just in time for the College World Series and was terrible. He was awful. <laughs> and Miami at this time, this was a roster that was just packed with future big leaguers. And LSU was really good. And this was kind of the showdown to figure out who was going to be you know, the team of the decade of the 90s. And poor Warren Morris ends up at the plate with two outs in the bottom of the last inning and his poor mother was sitting in Alexandria, Louisiana, with her head in her hands going, oh, my God, this is how my son's career is going to end, is striking out at the end of the College World Series <laughs> with a hurt hand. And, uh, and, and Warren always says, I talked to him just a couple months ago, he always says that he felt terrible all year, and the first time he felt good in the batting cage was that morning. And he got a pitch he could drive, and he just kind of flicked it. Uh, over the corner in the right-hand side of the fence at Rosenblatt Stadium, which was, I said Indianapolis is my favorite sporting venue in the world. And uh, the only reason I didn't say Rosenblatt is because Rosenblatt's gone. But uh, what a great place and what a great moment. And, uh, yeah, I always know when it's raining at the College World Series because uh, my phone starts blowing up and it's my <laughs> friends because every time it rains, what they use for rain fill is to show the Warren Morris documentary. Which you were a part of. Even if I'm not watching, I know it's raining in Omaha when my friends are going, hey, you're on TV talking about Warren Morris. Well, that's awesome, man. And I, I know, I mean, working here, rain delays during college baseball, that's something that, uh, that I've come to, there's a love-hate relationship with rain yeah, delays. Yeah, well, during... in Omaha, and listen, in, in the College World Series is it's so incredible. 
and it's so amazing to go cover. But uh, you're there for two weeks. <laughs> and, you know, late afternoon thunderstorms, I don't have to tell you guys, you know, especially in the Midwest, it's just it's every afternoon. And so those two-day two games, in, or two-game days in particular, you're almost always going to hit it. But, yeah, my friends that all worked in the press box, Kyle Peterson and those guys, they always say, by the end of the College World Series, they hate my guts because they've only <laughs> done like two or three documentaries about college baseball, and I'm in all of them. So, uh, so anytime they said, and they play them in the stadium. So anytime they said everybody is raining, everybody in Omaha hates me by the end of the two weeks because they're tired of looking at me. So I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about, I think what we're all just kind of waiting for to start, which is college football season. Yeah. And kind of the big, the big headline uh, this week has been the whole Urban Meyer uh, scenario. So how do you see that playing out? Do you think he'll be able to keep his job, or do you think that he's going to be gone before the season well, starts? Well, my initial reaction was that he's going to be gone. Mm-hmm. Um, but but as the, the, the longer this thing has stretched on, uh, the more I've realized he's going to be back. Um, and and once the commit once the the investigation committee announced very specifically, we have 14 days to do our investigation, which is just weird. Yeah, why do you think they did that? I, well, I just think they know they've got to do whatever they're going to do before the season starts. Okay, and yeah. so, if you go in and put a deadline on it, uh, then you know. I, I don't know, it, but but just it it all it was a week ago when they started all it was the, that Friday after the news broke that my, our buddy Brett McMurphy wrote out there and and you know once once that Friday afternoon right at five o'clock when everyone getting off of work right when that hit that oh and by the way the AD knew too that's when I realized okay this is this is a coordinated effort you know this is they're rolling over on the athletic director now. And they're going to do what they can to save Urban Meyer. It, listen, you guys know this. In the end, follow the money. Yeah. yeah. And and if the two biggest boosters at Ohio State are the guy that owns Bed Bath and Beyond and Victoria's Secret, who's a billionaire, and then Jimmy Haslam that owns the Cleveland Browns. And if those two guys call and say he's got to go, he's gone. But if those two guys call and say, you know what, we really – probably need to keep him around, then they put their lawyers on and they figure something out. So, you know, follow the money on those deals. He might not coach the first few weeks, but by the time we hit October and the games really start mattering, I got a pretty good feeling that, that Urban Meyer's going to be on the sideline. So, in that same regard, so let me ask you this. This is something I'm, I'm honestly not sure how I feel about. Do you think it's the coach's job to sort of act as like a moral compass for like the entire university, or do you think it's just his job to, you know, coach his players? Well, I think you're the CEO of a multi-million dollar corporation. Mm -hmm. And I think that if you were the CEO at IBM or the CEO at Geico or the CEO at wherever, uh, if you were the CEO of your local home security system company on the corner, you know, it's your responsibility what the people underneath you do. It is. And and, and if you're going to be... I, you know, I say this all the time. I, 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 t- talking about race car drivers, I, I've had this conversation with, with drivers before, which is they complain because their divorce is in the paper, or they complain because people are asking about the things. And I'm like, listen, you can't take the big paycheck, and you can't star in TV commercials, and you can't be on billboards and then get your feelings hurt if the public wants to hold you to a higher standard. And, and if you're the CEO of, of, of a multi one, one of the state of Ohio's biggest corporations is Ohio State football. And if you're the CEO of that, and that's what Urban Meyer is, and, and oh, by the way, you also have kind of put yourself out there over the years as the moral compass, which he has done, then, um, then you know, you, you have to be prepared to uh, take the darts when the time comes. And, uh, and, and I, don't, I don't believe that he is. I have one final football question for you, and uh, we'll get ready to let you go. Uh, your alma mater, you went to Tennessee, right? Yeah. W- what did you think about the whole Shiano situation and where they stand now? Well, I think that the Tennessee fan base did not distinguish itself. Um, I think that, and, and these are my people. I mean, listen, I'm an alum. Uh, I'm married into it. I married a Knoxville girl. Uh, between my roommates and my in-laws, uh, every time I speak out on this, uh, I get nasty personal text messages, <laughs> but the reality is that um, the fan base, has they have a reputation now. They just do. And um, it's not everybody, but it certainly were the people that were making the most noise. And, you know, it was everything short of grabbing 
pitchforks and tar and feathering somebody. It just was, and, and it was um, it was the kind of thing that they weren't doing in Knoxville not that long ago, and now it seems pretty routine. So I like Shiano fine. I don't know if he was the right hire or not. Uh, I think the athletic director was doomed regardless. But um, but ten, the Tennessee fan base did not do itself any favors, and and, and and still won't let it go. Like even now with the Urban Meyer thing, you know, uh, almost immediately. Uh, there was a group of very loud Tennessee fans that were turning this into, well, Shiano's one of his guys, so we just, you know, he probably knew about this too. It's like, just let it go. You got a new head coach, just just move on. But they just kind of, they kind of crave the soap opera in Knoxville, and um, and sometimes you're just willing to create one even when there wasn't one. Well, I know you're on the clock, Ryan. It's just an outstanding appearance. We really appreciate it. Matt, you got anything else you want to add? No, man, just uh, appreciate you taking the time out. I know you got a busy schedule. So, so yeah, we definitely appreciate it. Hey, I appreciate everything you do, and I will see you down at the office. <laughs> well, boys, that was awesome. Ryan McGee, uh, a great uh, 25 minutes or so. We're definitely going to book him on the show again for sure. That was fun. The guy knows oh, was, a lot. It was a ton of fun. I, I, was, I was impressed, Jared. You brought up some, uh, some NASCAR questions. I've always wanted to go to a NASCAR race. I don't know about you guys, but... Absolutely. Rivals Tap House and Grill is the official sports bar of Three Point Podcast. March Madness is rolling along, so head on over to Rivals Tap House and Grill to check out all the action on 21 flat screens and the huge 120-inch screen. Join us March 25th as we celebrate the release of Bells Oberon and take home some free Bells swag. Rivals Tap House and Grill. Check out SheridanAuctionService.com for info on upcoming auctions. Han Northside Sunoco items are currently listed in an online auction ending April 2nd. Call 989-720-SELL for details or online at SheridanAuctionService.com for their upcoming auctions. Advanced Elevator Company features top-of-the-line field technicians for installation, troubleshooting service, and repair of elevators. An area business leader and longtime supporters of the Corona Public Schools. Next up is Corona High School grad and one of the best college football coaches in America, Tony Anise. My brother John filled in as the anchor for this great interview from 3PP number 18. With us right now on the line is... Uh, Ferris State football coach Tony Aneath. He is a uh, Michigan Hall of Fame coach, probably one of the, part of the one of the greatest father-son coaching combinations in history. Uh, and Tony goes back to uh, his coach at Muskegon Catholic, Central Holland, West Ottawa, Montrose, Ann Arbor Pioneer, Jenison, Muskegon, Grand Rapids Community College, and currently has been at Ferris State since 2012. And he has won everywhere he has ever been. Tony, welcome to the show. Including, including that Kerwood uh, Park game, doing basketball. I, I knew there was no way that you could be on this podcast without mentioning that show. So go ahead, get it out of the way, give the story. <laughs> no, that's all right. I'm too old now to even remember. I just know that uh, back in the day, it was uh, it's pretty easy to beat you one on one. All you had to do was just sit back and and uh, sag because you couldn't shoot, and uh, you were a double, dribble penetrator, and I just let you shoot. And, Rebound the basketball and and make shots on you. That's it. It looks like my dad. He's uh, he's not quite standing up to you a bit, but I know off record he's told me that you have absolutely no right hand. Well, you don't have to when you've got somebody that's five foot four guarding you. That's All right, yep, Tuesday. I, that's enough of a memory. You're you're good with that. Hey, so first, why don't you give us a little update? Uh, you guys just finished spring ball. You had your spring game, uh, I believe, this past weekend. Uh, how, how did they look? And what are you looking for for this upcoming season? Yeah, you know, it was a great spring, um, uh, minus the weather. Um, the weather, obviously, was very challenging. But, uh, you know, our guys, uh, you know, they're they're pretty well focused on going out there and and getting the job done. So I thought all in all it was a good spring. Um, we lost, like, 14 seniors off of our defense. And so uh, going to spring, that was a, a big, uh, you know, thing that we wanted to focus on to try to grow um, – guys in the spots and did a very good job of that and uh in our offense uh we didn't lose that many guys and we were just trying to build up and i thought we did that too so so all in all good um you know we've uh we're uh, knocking on the door our basketball team won the national championship which is really great to see um and uh we've been knocking on the door for the last few years and and uh, we're continually trying to grow to, to do the same thing the basketball team did. 
You mentioned that you lost 14 seniors. Uh, you hear it all the time. With You see it with, like, P.J. Fleck, you know, the row, row the boat mantra. What would you say your culture at Ferris State, what would you say it's predicated on? What What would you stand for that makes you guys so su- successful? Well, um, you know, if he's got row the boat, I'll just tell you, you know, our, our motto is in the fold. And for us, uh, fold stands for our four core values, which is faith, order, love, and discipline. And uh, so, you know, just, just kind of talking about, you know, faith for a second. Um, when I took over in 2012, you know, it was almost one of those things where I said we we're going to do this, and I had to recruit really with my word and my word only because there's really, really no truth of evidence. And so, you know, it had to be a belief system or a faith that something special is going to happen. And, and then, you know, we've been, uh, you know, one of five teams in all of college football that have won at least 11 games each of the last four years. So so our guys have hung in there. You know, we, we don't uh, don't promise the world to them. We just promise them an opportunity to, to compete and, and to, you know, play the great game of football. And, you know, our guys have really relished in that opportunity. Our player development's been unbelievable. Currently we've got uh, – Four guys that are already in NFL camps as we speak. We expect at least three more um, either to possibly be drafting, drafted in the next coming days or, you know, getting a free agent contracts. So we expect seven guys being in NFL camps here uh, shortly. You know, you talk about having seven guys who might be um, going into NFL camps next year and the work ethic that this group has already put together looking forward to next year and and Jared asked about culture how has how has today's political climate changed or how does that affect what you do on a daily basis as a coach does it have any impact do you find that you have to address some of that as a coach where in the past never never came up well yeah I mean I mean first off you know people you know people are you know that people are talking about diversity all the time like you know they're living it and uh and I can say with our team, it, it's our reality. So uh, you know, there's some people that are bystanders to diversity, and and uh, obviously they you know they may have respect for it, but it's a pretty sensitive topic when it comes to you know how people feel about one another, and and so um, because of that political climate, you know we we got to talk all the time about the realities of. Um, you know, what, what are young people face from a day, day in and day out, you know, from the far right or the far left. Um, and then we have to make sure that our guys realize that, you know, everything's good on the football field and everything's sacred with the, you know, the brotherhood and love we have for each other. And that some of the, you know, crazy opinions about, you know, judging people um, based upon the color of their skin or, you know, you know, they're they're based on their socioeconomics or their culture or upbringing or anything of that sort. That's all, uh, you know, that's all something that society does. But, you know, within our football team and our family, you know, those those controversial topics don't exist. Tony, this is Matt here. Um, I'm, I went to Grand Valley State. I, I graduated from Grand Valley State in 2008. So, so when I was there, Grand Valley was one of the best uh, football programs in Division Two, maybe maybe the best, and they won a couple national championships while I was a student there. And uh, so I was just wondering, when you took the job at Ferris State, Grand Valley was coming off of, I think, six straight GLIAC championships, and, you know, they were kind of running the show there in the GLIAC, and Ferris State was solid, but they were kind of usually around a 500 uh, football team. What did it mean for you to have a team or a school, a program like Grand Valley State, to kind of set your goals to try and aspire to what they were doing and, and to compete against? Well, certainly it wasn't even uh, a consideration to measure ourselves to Grand Valley because, um, first off, what they had done, you know, it, it didn't matter to us in 2012 what they had done. You know, the reality is every season, you know, you're, you know, you're focused on, you know, that year. So, you know, the past was the past with, with what Grand Valley had done. You know, we, we didn't focus on them at all, and we didn't use them as a measuring stick at all. What I did do is, you know, people asked me right away when I took the job at Ferris, being in West Michigan, you know, how are you going to compete with Grand Valley? Well, we had beaten them 
since 1999. So that was the least of my concerns. My concern was, you know, you know, hopefully our guys could grow every day, try to be better every day, focus on ourselves, and not worry about them and and what they had done to Ferris for you know the whole the whole century. Um, and then you know we played them in 2012 and we beat them and. And, uh, you know, when even approaching that, that week, I said, let's not worry about Grand Valley. Let's worry, on, worry about Ferris State. And we went out and beat them our first year, and we've beaten them at least, uh, you know, at least one time a year for the last six years. And so, uh, you know, you just can't, you know, the reality is you can't just, you know, worry about somebody uh, that's got an established program when you're trying to establish program. You worry about just trying to focus on yourself and try to develop your team and the mentality of your team to really be uh, uh, believers that you can go out and beat anybody. And that's been our approach, and, and uh, you know, we've, we've, we've been able to be very successful with that approach. Tony, certainly having that, that mantra of we're going to control what we can control and we're going to become as good as we can, can be regardless of what anyone else is doing. Is that something that, that you got from your, your father, Nick, and the way that he coached? I never got the opportunity to play for him, um, uh, but I'm certain there are some things that you have, have used from his, his career. Can you share some of, those, some of those items? Yeah, no, I think absolutely. It comes from, uh, you know, it comes from, you know, Nick and Eason, his approach every day, you know, I don't think he ever worried about an opponent. I don't think he ever, you know, I don't think he ever, you know, put someone on a pedestal. Um, I think he just said, you know, we're the Corona Cavaliers and we're going to go out there and, and play. And, and and that was true and it always existed. You know, they were always, um, his teams are always competitive. They, you know, they, they could go out there and beat anybody on any given day. And, in fact, in his very last year, I think he thought he had the best team in the state, and I think he would have played anybody that year. You know, unfortunately, uh, the way the playoff system worked back then, you know, they're, you know, Corona didn't get in at nine and zero, and that's unfortunate. But yeah, you know, and then you know, growing up with, uh, you know, the three brothers I grew up, you know, <laughs> it didn't matter. You know, I mean. You've played enough basketball with Felden. No, Phil didn't care who he was playing against. Um, he didn't believe anybody was as good as him. And you know, you know, you, you were you were the beneficiary, I think, of the Felonese attitude, and that you know, uh, you guys were able to win a state championship. But if you think back to when Frank Davis came into Corona and uh, assess the challenges that uh, our program faced, I mean. It was it was it was horrible, and uh, you know Phil's team and and uh, you know Georgie's team and and that group of guys. I mean they they went to the regionals and you know they won 18 games and and it was one of those things where that yeah, I mean that's when the program turned right then and that was a year after I graduated. But you know that mindset is you know you know we're going to go beat anybody at any time, and I I think that belief system is important. Because I think sometimes people uh, put some mental limitations, you know, on themselves in regards to focusing on what somebody's done in the past, and and you know, if, if you're focused on what they've done, you, you know, you're probably going to lose to them. You know, just the mentality. You know, uh, I see it every day. You know, I watched it last night when when LeBron James, you know, willed his team to victory. Um, you know, when he doesn't really have a supporting cast, and you know, it's just. It's just the strength of trying to go out and be at your best and and not look at any opponent like they're better than you. I think that's important. I think it's a great mantra to live by and to certainly coach by. And I'm impressed that you gave some brotherly love out there. That was uh, that was good. Hey, I, I'm I'm wondering too. I know that uh, you're a little bit different from many coaches nowadays. You take a look at someone like Bill Belichick on the sideline wearing some cutoff sweats on the uh, on the side and. You still go with the tie look. What's the? Is, did you get that from your dad? Did you get that from Tom Landry, Dick Nolan? Who who is your who's your mentor when it comes to that? No, it's in honor of Nick and Ease. Um, I've done it, gosh, for I guess three hundred and thirty some games now, um, and I, you know I would never never change that. So that's purely in honor of my dad, and uh, you know I just started wearing a tie, thinking about 
you know, my dad and what, you know, what, you know, how he really approached his business and, and uh, you know, his profession and, and, you know, wearing a tie to me was uh, my way to honor him. So that's why I've done it. Well, that's pretty cool. Uh, speaking of fantastic coaches, which obviously you and, and your, your dad, Nick, were, I, I remember when I went to a basketball coaches clinic and heard Lute Olson from Arizona speak, and he said that he started out as a seventh-grade basketball coach, and he said that he had faced coaches as a seventh-grade coach who were better than some of the guys that he went up against in Division One when he was at Arizona at the time. Can you think of any, any coach that you've ever competed against who you believe is just top-notch, but they're just simply under the radar and maybe somebody doesn't, they just don't know about this person, whether it could be a JV coach, because I know you've coached multiple levels over the course of time. Is there someone who you just respect the heck out of, but they're under the radar? Well, yeah, and, and football, you know, I, I've, I've you know, been a head coach for so long. I was only a JV coach for a couple of years, but Asking that question makes me kind of think about how many times people say, well, he's just a high school coach. And uh, in the college football world, you know, you see um, Jeremy Pruitt, head coach at Tennessee, high school coach. You know, the, the head coach at uh, Texas now, high school coach. And, and so you see this, the head coach at Arkansas now, high school coach. And, and so you see all the success high school coaches, former high school coaches are having at the college level. You know, the head coach at Auburn, former high school head coach. So so it's cool to see. Um, but, you know, there, there's so many guys that you, you think back, like, you know, John Chilito at uh, Zealand West now. Uh, you know, he, he runs a unique system, but uh, he's just a great coach, and, he, and he's so professional, and he does things so, you know, successfully. You know, coaching, I've coached against some great coaches, you know. So I coach against Alfred Casa, you know, Tom Mack. You know, those guys are just you know, guys that, that, you know, could could roll into the college game and do, you know, great things. Um, you know, I said that to Peter Sturzum a few years ago when he was at East Grand Rapids, and I never coached against him, but but uh, I talked to him about it, and then he got the Hope College job, and all of a sudden, like, boom, you know, Hope College is a little good again. So, you know, there's a lot of high school coaches out there that, uh, you know, could coach college football, and a lot of people say, well, you know, they're high school coaches, so they've never really recruited. And uh, I say this much about um, former high school coaches. You know, you're recruiting every day um, as a high school coach. You're recruiting in your hallways. You're interacting with teachers. You're interacting with students. You're, you're, you're uh, you know, making sure that kids are feeling okay, that teachers are, you know, they're doing well enough in their classroom with teachers. So, High school coaches do like an extraordinarily amount of, uh, you know, extra things um, that college coaches aren't used to doing. And I think being a high school head coach helps you to be a college uh, coach. And uh, it makes you really ultimately, I always say, uh, coach their heart, not their talent. And we've got that poster in our office, but we want to coach young people's heart, not their talent. So in high school, you've got to coach everybody's heart because – there's just not – you can't win with three or four talented kids in high school. In college, you recruit, so you got, you know, you got, you know, recruitable athletes everywhere. But in high school, you know, you might have that right guard on the football team that's 160 pounds. You might have that quarterback like John Patel who couldn't throw it 30 yards. You were my – you taught um, me. You might have that, you know, <laughs> all of a sudden you might have that basketball team that – you know, is is really small, so you're playing a style of basketball where you're pressing 94 feet up and down, and and so you know those are all things that high school coaches have to adapt to. Where college coaches, in my opinion, um, it becomes challenging. And the last thing is, high school coaches are teachers, so they're used to being teachers. You know, you sometimes listen to a college coach speak at a at a, a convention, and they don't even know you know how to even really use technology to to do a PowerPoint presentation and, and things like that. So, so those are all observations I've got between, you know, guys that potentially could be great college coaches but really haven't had the opportunity. So where do you think you've been able to have a bigger impact on your players' lives, as a college coach or as a high school coach? Oh, you know, as a high school coach, definitely. You know, there, there's people always say, well, you know, what, what do you like about the high school game and what do you like about the college game? I loved being with the – 
with the players every day in high school. So, and I mean, I'm talking about every day. So, you know, like for instance, you know, our, our guys are have taken exams next week. Today, you know, being in the office, I see about half the guys, and probably next week I'm going to see about a quarter of the guys, and then I won't see any of the guys for you know the next three or four weeks till they come back for the summer and. And so you're with high school kids all day, every day. You're taking them home after practice. You're making sure that they have lunch if they don't have lunch. You know, um, you're making sure that they're they're you know studying for this test or that test if they need to. And and if mom and dad have something wrong um, where you know they need your help, then you're there to help. You know, um, the college game. Um, I our, my staff were incredible. Um, at taking care of young people, but the interaction just isn't at the high, at the highest level. Most of the time, you know, I I have to have my position coaches kind of monitoring my guys, and so I've got 125 players. So you know, there might be eight receivers, and my receiver coach has to manage all eight of those guys. And and so high school football, you're just you're just like ingrained at a much higher level. You know, you, you talk about that and, and kind of that investment that you have with, with players, which kind of guides me into the next question. Um, I, I look back on my coaching career, and I, oftentimes I see some of my players on my very first Corona team, which was in 1999, and we, we lost in the regionals, and I think because of something that I did as a coach. We we came out and pressed Saginaw Buena Vista, and we're leading 19-18 to 18 at the end of the first quarter. And I thought that, all right, we can continue doing this all game. Well, we couldn't, and we ended up getting just dusted. So has there been a time where you've had a, you feel you had a disappointing loss where you think there was something that you either did or didn't do that was the, was the difference in the game that just kind of sticks out and says, oh, man, if I could only do that over again? Oh, my goodness, so many of them. So, you know, going back to you know, times where, you know, you were, you were around our program a lot, just going back to Montrose, so – I was a young coach as a head coach when I was 26. I, I didn't know anything. I mean, literally, as I look back, I'm like, I mean, how did I even function? And so I'll go back to, like, you know, some of the talented teams. And, and not to say that, you know, we weren't given great effort and our kids were playing hard and our coaches were coaching hard. But I would say, you know, looking back, um, I think the 1990 team, probably should have won a state championship. I think the 92 team should have won the state championship. And I definitely think the 94 team would have won the state championship. Just uh, me being a little bit more um, astute on some of the things that I know now, you know, just from an offensive philosophy standpoint. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of those things where, like, dang, you know, what was I thinking back then, you know? And uh, so, you know, and then you lose some that, you know, you just might, you know, you just might not think through a process or a circumstance where, you know, in 1997, you know, we had a chance to kick a field goal, win a game, and instead of kicking the field goal, we fumble because I call it two of a high risk of a play. So yeah, that happens a lot. But then, you know, I could I could say the same thing about our last game. You know, losing uh, to Harding in the quarterfinals this past year. You know, you just as a coach, you just focus on the losses more than you focus on the wins. That's just the nature of who we are. And, uh, you know, you just, you know, you just think, gosh, if I was a little better, we could have won that game. You talked about your philosophy. In, in high school, you ran more of like the tra- traditional veer. And then I would say pretty much right as you stepped foot on Ferris, you shifted to more of a, you know, shotgun, uh, spread you out, uh, read option type offense. Why did you feel the need to make that change? Well, it's always been with me, it's always been uh, more about personnel than scheme. And so I've always, and, and people are constantly asking me, why do you change all the time? Because well, my players change all the time. You know, when, when I took over at Ferris, it was really quick to see I had like a, a man child at quarterback, and, uh, you know, 6'4, 241. He, he was. He was adept at running the option but he was more adept at you know you know running the ball downhill and so sometimes when you're running an option game you know you're dependent on the read as to whether 
you know, you're going to have the ball in the quarterback's hands or running back's hands or the, or the slot's hands. And in this case, I needed the ball in his hands a lot. And so we, we developed a system where we had a lot of predetermined quarterback runs. And, and you know, it's very effective to do it that way. So, you know, we still have all of our old schemes in play. Um, I think they're always going to be a part of what I want to do um, in regards to at least having them you know, something that we can use if necessary. You know, being a triple option team forces the defense to spend, you know, time in preparation to defend the triple option. So schematically, they have to have a plan for it. So I'll, I'll still maintain that um, throughout my career. But, you know, most of it is based upon, you know, what, what our guys are capable of doing, you know. And uh, so, you know, we've, we've got some really good receivers. Uh, really good receivers, ones from Montrose there, Malik Taylor. You know, we're we're gonna get him the ball. So, you know, it's just like you know feeding feeding the hot guy in basketball. You know, you change your scheme somewhat, somewhat when you've got you know a great player who can dominate the game. So that's kind of what we do. Tony, you were talking about player personnel and player turnover and, and, and adapting to the players that you have. Some of the some of the big news right now in Michigan, especially in Ann Arbor, is is Shea Patterson and if he's going to be ruled eligible by the NCAA uh, for his transfer. I'm curious what your in, in your opinion what what your thoughts are on on the transfer rules in college football and and the fact that coaches can can kind of come and go as they please and take new jobs and and are able they don't have to sit out a year or anything like that but if players feel the need to transfer in certain cases they have to sit out a year before they can be eligible to play in your opinion is that something that you think if they change the rule it could be bad for college football and and what kind of things does that present for for a coach if if their players can just come and go as they please well yeah that's a a great question Um, and it's a very controversial topic First off, if, if, if a university is under NCAA investigation and the coach lost his job because of that uh, investigation, I would say that every player on that team should be able to, you know, leave without punishment. You know, I, I just don't like the idea of, you know, all of a sudden the player suffering because a coach cheated. And so, you know, with, with with Shea Patterson, I think he should be immediately eligible, just my opinion on, you know, Coach Freeze and what happened there. And I don't know all the details, obviously, because I'm not in the middle of it. But when the NCAA comes in and, and ends up, uh, you know, punishing the university because of NCAA violations, then I, I think that should be the case. Now, beyond that, I can't stand what's happening with the, um, you know, with, with everybody moving all over the place and now, you know, graduating and and leaving, you know, university to go to another university for the last season, I, I can't stand that part of it. Fortunately, we don't have those situations. But I, I don't like the opportunity for, for young people to transfer. I see they're talking about, you know, allowing kids to transfer more and not, you know, taking a year of eligibility out. And I've got a bunch of transfers, um, but uh, – you know, if it's, if a young person has to sit out a year and transfers, then that's the way that's the way it should be. I don't, I don't, I'm not advocating that we just open the doors for yeah. transfers at any time. Um, one of the NCAA rules that I can't stand, and I think it's wrong, is um, early entry into a university after a high school seventh semester. You know, they're taking away a kid's opportunity to play basketball in the winter or run track or the spring or play baseball in the spring or, um, you know, go to prom and those kind of things. I think it's just wrong. Um, I don't think we should hurry kids off to, you know, have them leave their mom and dad to uh, go to some big-time Division One school their eighth semester, what would be their eighth semester of high school, in order to go, you know, go to college early. So don't like that rule at all. I wish the NCAA would, would change that and say, no, no, no more, no, you know, more, no more of this, you know, early entry into college because uh, sometimes I think we're forcing kids to grow up too fast and they're not enjoying, you know, the, the greatness of what high school, uh, you know, participation in sports and 
just being a high school student with your family. Um, I think that's important. I like that old school approach. Yep. So here's a good question. So on your you run you run the no huddle offense, and I notice uh, at your games that you have sideline boards where you hold for like play calls. And I was just curious if there's any way we could get a, we could get a three point podcast one made. But before you answer, uh, as as you know, but as the readers might not know, or as the listeners might not know, I currently mow your your mom's lawn. And if you were able to do that, I would be willing to mow entirely for free. What do you think? Oh. You don't want to do that, man. My mom wants you to mow it every other day. <laughs> it's too much work. Oh no, it's awesome. I I love it. She's the nicest person I know. Well, listen, Tony. I want to I want to thank you for being with us. We're going to be turning our attention to the NFL draft. Do you have time to stick around and crack wise, or do you need to uh, need to skedaddle? No, I'll um, I'll sit and listen to you guys a little bit, but I'm going to eat my dinner while we do it. So. <laughs> What's, I'm gonna put you on speaker, and I'll just uh, pipe in when I when I when I can. You got it. Well, the Corona Connection knows it's great to be gold. Keep up to date on all that is Corona. The spring sports seasons are underway at Corona High, so keep up with the Cavs at CoronaConnection.com. Finally, we leave you with the thoughts of our oldest athletic supporter, Jack Strap. watched uh, Michigan beat Florida State at Rivals Tap House in Corona with my lovely wife Jackie. At halftime, I ordered another fantastic burger at my age. Doesn't matter how fat I am, I can eat as much as I want and drink because I ordered another beer. Well, anyway, I'm ordering another beer and the guy next to me says, hey, are you Jack Strap? And I said, well, yes, sure. Do I owe you money? <laughs> oh, uh, he didn't think it was that funny and really, I guess it wasn't. But anyway, he began telling me how he liked the three-point podcast, and he wondered how in the hell I was, and uh, I got hooked up with a show with you guys, so I shared my story. So, I figured this might be a good time to share it with others. Well, my son, Jake, knew Ted back in high school. They were both hippies, and one night in February of 1974, I decided to attend a Corona Home Varsity basketball game against Hazlitt, and my sister-in-law, Edith, she had a son on the JV team. She lived out in the Lansing area. Well, Corona had a pretty good team that year with Teddy and Mark Valasek, and the game was quite chippy-skippy, and in the fourth quarter, all hell broke loose. I'll, I'll let Teddy explain it at this point. Well, yeah, we had a couple of local refs, as a matter of fact, uh, Bill Renwick and uh, Gary Schooley, and things were getting a little chippy in that game, and Hazlitt had a guard that uh, was jawing at me all night long, and then he came down court and intentionally hit me with an elbow in the face and uh, I was known to have a little bit of a temper so I kind of went at him fans started going at it and it was all hell broke loose they called the game with about two minutes to go finally finally cleared out the gym yeah and then I've never been one to avoid a fight and so uh, I really don't like my nephew anyway so I was in the mood to beat a Hazlitt guy up too so I jumped down onto the court and uh, and I got into the melee and I, I think I helped break up the fight actually with this guy named McCoy I think he had <laughs> one of his kids on the team is that right Ted? That, that's exactly right Jack McCoy's dad. Yep so anyway uh, so now fast forward to 1975 and I'm having a drink at Melody Bar in Owasso with my dad Jocko and who do I see but Teddy well of course we strike up a conversation because that was sort of a, an interesting night and I told him I liked how he was scrappy and the way he played and we had no trouble communicating and perhaps that had something to do with the beer I don't know but eventually I ordered a round of beer for Teddy and, uh, and his buddies there and uh, we sort of struck up a friendship yeah as a matter of fact uh, i played for melody bar my first year in city league i met jack he was sitting at the bar talking with uh, the general manager of the bar al haskins and it was really great you bought the round of drinks as a matter of fact that night was the very first night i met my wife lana we were out on a blind date how about that exactly exactly i'm not sure i ever paid that bill either but uh, <laughs> anyway so periodically i'd run into ted and laura and we would always catch up on the tigers and the lions and whatever sports topic was on the radar well this past summer i ran into him at the grocery store and he mentioned the podcast and said that uh, hey you know we need a voice like yours to represent the greatest generation so here i am well i'll tell you what you fit right in we have uh, three generations mainly here as the host but 
that we thought it'd be a great idea to get the fourth guy. Tell us about the old days, and you fit the bill. Well, I know I know you probably have some empathy on the old man here, but that's okay because my old buddies that I have uh, coffee with, they, they get a kick out of the fact that I'm down there. And uh, sure, I like to embellish here and there, but I really appreciate you guys letting me on. Boy, old Jack sure has a way with words, eh? Card Service Michiana offers credit card setup and equipment for both new and existing merchants. Guaranteed to save you money. No contract, no monthly minimums, or early termination fees. Call 574-238-1397 or contact us here at 3 Point Pod for more details. Well, that's going to do it for now. We're glad you tuned into this special. And if you like this show, share Three Point Podcast with all your friends, coworkers, and family. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, TuneIn, and other podcast hosting sites. Give us a follow on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Three Point Pod. And again, thanks to our Three Point Podcast partners, Advanced Elevator, Sheridan Realty and Auction Company, Rivals Tap House and Grill, the Corona Connection, and the Corona Public Schools. Special thanks also go out to you, the listeners and good luck with your bracket. This has been a three-point podcast production in conjunction with Sportsnet Michigan and Z92.5 The Castle. Thanks once again for listening to Three Point Podcast.